Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the United Nations Climate Conference in Egypt, otherwise known as COP27. The Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, has said it must deliver a down payment on climate solutions that match the scale of the problem. But how big is that problem? Well, if nations delivered their current pledges in full, that would mean a rise in global heating of about two and a half Celsius by 2030, a level the UN's climate agency says would lead the world to catastrophic climate breakdown. COP26 in Glasgow last year kept alive a previous pledge to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees. But the UN's Environment Agency recently said there is no credible pathway for that to be achieved. All this as UNESCO warns that around a third of the glaciers at its World Heritage sites are expected to disappear in the next three decades, including the ice cap at Mount Kilimanjaro. We'll be talking shortly to Amelia Womack, former deputy leader of the Green Party. She's also a delegate for the Global Greens at Sharm el-Sheikh, where COP27 is being held in Egypt, and Dr Ella Gilbert, a climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. Subs cost from as little as £3 a month. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Ella and Amelia. Ella, tell us about the glaciers. So glaciers and the frozen parts of our planet are kind of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate change. And this recent UNESCO report shows that about a third of the world's glaciers are likely to disappear within 30 years. And this essentially underlines the fact that we have already kind of committed to some degree of world-changing climate change. But it's really a call to action because the flip side of that point is that two-thirds of the world's glaciers can still be saved as long as we keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that 1.5 degrees Celsius is compared to the pre-industrial temperature of the Earth. We should just make that clear. And exactly. What's the impact for the world if these glaciers melt or when they melt? So worldwide, glaciers are a really hugely important source of drinking water for many people. For example, in the Himalaya, nearly 2 billion people depend on rivers that are directly fed by meltwater from, from glaciers there. So this is a really hugely important factor when it comes to, to glaciers. But also the fact that glaciers are melting is, of course, adding additional water to our oceans. So this is driving sea level rise. And in fact, glaciers melting at the moment are the one of the primary causes of rising sea level. So this is obviously hugely significant for, for people all over the world because rising sea levels are likely to affect pretty much everyone on Earth. Yes. And we've got a, a big 
debate around immigration in the UK at the moment, the reality of climate change is that people in areas at low sea level are going to have to move somewhere, aren't they? This is going to create refugees around the world. Precisely. And I think, you know, living on an island, we think that things are difficult now. We could potentially be losing more and more of our our land area. And if sea levels continue to rise and we don't do anything to prevent further climate change, it could jeopardise drinking water resources, agricultural land, places for people to actually live. And it's just one of many, many uh, challenges that comes with climate impacts. But yeah, we could be losing some of our our coastlines to rising seas. Amelia, these COP summits go back to 1992, to the first summit in Rio. And we had Paris in 2015, which was seen as a marker in the sand. And that was when the commitment to restrict the temperature to 1.5 degrees warming was agreed internationally. But as the UN itself acknowledges, the progress since then has been pretty poor. What comfort can we take from anything that is agreed at these COP summits? I think the first thing that strikes me is that the era of climate denial is over. At least we are now all agreeing about the problem at hand and the action does need to be taken. Taking that action, not clear to see how that's happening. And I think in the UK, we've seen a lack of leadership on this, a lack of genuine policies that mean that we're taking this seriously and even taking responsibility for our historic emissions. We've been one of the biggest, historically one of the biggest emitters around the world. And then it's those countries that have done the least to cause climate emergency. They're experiencing the worst effects. But there is still hope. Every COP is a chance to have hope. And the fact that we are moving closer to the fact that we need to take action Talking about loss and damage, that was a a sticking point at COP26 about people's commitments to keeping 1.5 alive and the need to keep loss and damage on the table. These big things that we're talking about at this COP, that's decarbonisation, loss and damage and supporting resilience really in communities as well, are going to be important and hot topics As I said, every COP is a chance for action. But I think that what we're seeing at the moment is that public pressure has also changed. And the U-turn by Rishi Rishi Sunak was just one example of that. But people do want to see action. And increasingly, people are seeing those links between environmental justice, climate justice and social justice. And I think that will be an important stepping stone to imagining what leadership for all countries looks like. Yeah, Rishi Sunak originally wasn't going to go, saying that he had domestic matters to attend to. I think once he saw that Boris Johnson was going, he decided actually it was quite important for him to go. And you talk about the loss and damage financing, which is a a big debating point at these COPs. I suppose the UK proudly boasts that it was the first industrial nation. Well, we therefore triggered globally the rise in emissions that all of us now are going to have to deal with. So how are we going to compensate for that? It's going to be quite a hard sell politically, isn't it, to the British people at a time of rising tax? And also, another thing we do need to take responsibility for is the way that we export a lot of our emissions, the reproduction of different items outside of the UK. So when 
politicians often talk about reducing emissions in the UK, I feel like it's just looking at it in such a microcosm because we build cars elsewhere, our clothes are produced elsewhere. It means that we're avoiding the impact that, again, we're having on the rest of the world. And it will be, I mean, already the UK has missed the deadline to provide 288 million to the Green Climate Fund to help developing countries adapt and mitigate against climate effects. And also there was a a 20.6 million pledge for the UK to make to the Adaptation Fund. Both of these funds were there to support projects in developing world where they're suffering most from the climate crisis, again, that they did the least to cause. And I know the reality of what that looks like. I think all of these COPs, it's often, there are all kinds of meetings that happen behind closed doors, but working on developing how we collaborate on many of these issues. And yet there will be a financial impact, but the financial impact of not doing anything is going to be far worse. In 2007, Lord Stern released a report basically on the financial implications of the climate emergency. And every chance that we have to act on it is actually a long-term saving. It means that we are saving in terms of the the flood risk that we've got in the UK. Those homes, businesses, families have been devastated by increased flood events. You know, we really need to acknowledge that we've had extreme temperature quite often in the UK, even rising sea levels. There are parts of Wales that are being decommissioned as a result of rising sea levels. That means that soon they simply won't exist. And so all of these points and all of this work that we can do right now, linking social and environmental justice as well, is going to be really important, not just for tackling our global emissions today, but about thinking about those costs for the next 5, 10, 15 years. The war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, seems to have set back the desire to get to net zero, doesn't it? Countries have rushed to alternative energy sources, understandably, I suppose, in that people will complain if they're cold in winter, countries like Germany, for example. And I suppose it just underlines that how far we are from achieving the desired goal and how difficult it is given the unpredictability of world events. But we shouldn't be victim to those world events. I mean, I always say that the best time to have put climate policies in place was 30 years ago, and the second best time is right now. And if we were prioritising energy security, for example, that would be about investing in renewables and ensuring that our energy was produced in the UK. Already, the oil price is decided by people abroad. Geopolitics has always played a huge role in the price of oil and year upon year what frustrates me most is we've been having people facing fuel poverty year upon year upon year and yet the government failed to take action every winter fuel crisis that we've had and now as a result of those inevitable geopolitics that have have impacted it further we're seeing new oil licenses being dished out rather than enabling solar farms and solar licenses that were already in a planning application. And I think that this is a real example of the failure of this current government and previous Conservative governments to do those really basic things like home insulation to tackle fuel poverty and stop people having to choose between heating their home and putting food on the table. This isn't something that magically appeared as a result of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It's something that was exacerbated by it. And it just shows again 
the failure of this Conservative government to take action when it's clear how desperately it is needed that we are doing things like putting insulation into our homes, putting solar panels on some of the poorest homes in our communities so that we can reduce their energy bills. The solutions are there. I've always said, and it puzzles me why this isn't the case, that getting people's homes warm, it's not a party political issue. The idea of insulate now seems to me to be one that any political party could get behind. It would make ordinary people both warmer and richer because they wouldn't be having to spend so much money on energy bills. And yet we don't have any great all-encompassing desire to insulate our homes. There's resistance politically anyway to onshore wind farms. I'm not sure there's much pushback from ordinary people on that, although maybe there is from the people who read the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail. But so many of the levers are there if only we chose to pull them. Exactly. And I think there are so many solutions and there are so many levers that we could pull. It's just a matter of actually implementing them. And I think this is another thing about the forthcoming COP27 summit is that this is an implementation issue. It's not necessarily that we need to find new solutions to the problem because there are so many tried and tested solutions. There are so many things that we can do. It's just about making sure that people put their money where their mouth is and actually implement the the promises and the pledges that they've already said they're going to do. It's actually following through and ensuring we do do those things that we've said we will do. And a really big part of that is those kind of low-hanging fruit, unsexy things like insulating homes or doing energy saving measures. It is a win-win-win in many regards, but it's for some reason not always been shouted about by those in power because it's it's not quite as as shiny as perhaps they might want it to be. And the cash is there for change because the oil companies are making huge profits and they are windfall profits. They're not having to work any harder than they did before. They are benefiting from the rise in global oil prices triggered by, in part anyway, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's not as though they've had to put more into it to get more out of it. They're just getting much more money for doing not much more work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a windfall tax, I think, is an essential way to be ensuring that people aren't taking financial opportunities from situations like this. Let's not forget, though, that it was Rishi Sunak who, as Chancellor, who wrote a policy that basically had all the loopholes that has enabled companies like Shell to make excessive profits in this last quarter that weren't properly taxed and weren't subjected to the windfall tax. I really quite frustrated, really, with the current state of politics in the UK, where I feel that there are so many people paying warm words to the environment, but failing to take action. Public opinion is clearly high that action needs to be taken, but yet we see their track record being doing the complete opposite of prioritising the environment. And I hope really at this COP that we are able to hold to account those actions 
you know, Boris Johnson in his leaving speech listed every single thing that he had done, every single thing that he was proud of. And the environment and climate and COP wasn't mentioned. And I just think it shows how low down it is in their agenda. And things like the loopholes and the windfall tax, yet again, just shows that they're not prioritising these really important issues at hand. The science is extraordinarily clear when it comes to climate change. We have to move away from fossil fuels and we have to limit warming to 1.5 degrees to secure, in the words of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, i.e. the consensus of climate scientists, a livable future. So it's really of paramount importance. We need to tackle this so urgently and this has to be top of the agenda on every single political leaders around the world. And we need to make sure that all of them arriving at, at COP27 bear this in mind and, and make really just de- take really decisive actions to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The people running oil companies or at the top of oil companies, Amelia, are liable to get knighthoods and peerages. The people who protest against fossil fuels are likely to get jail sentences. I just wonder how you feel as someone who has spent their life in constitutional politics, trying to work through the Green Party, about those who take direct action like Just Stop Oil. I think it's important that we are raising the alarm bells about these issues. I don't agree with all of the actions, but the alarm bell needs to be raised. And I, I get quite frustrated at the media focus on the protests rather than those people with the power to make a difference. The reason people are protesting is because something needs to happen and they feel powerless in the face of a government that's failing to, to do anything to address these concerns that, as has been said, is about having a future, a planet that's, that we can still live in. The reason this is happening is really because those people with all of the power aren't using it effectively. And so people are using what they have in our democratic powers to take action. And I think it's really important to contrast that to where I am now in Egypt, where protest isn't allowed to happen. Being arrested in Egypt is quite different to the idea of being arrested in the UK. At the same time, every country on the African continent in this last year has experienced extreme weather and they really should have the right to have a say to protest and speak out about that at COP here in Egypt without feeling like their human rights could be violated if they try and take action. How heavy is it there? The security is just ramping up around Sharm el-Sheikh, but we've already seen an Indian activist arrested in Cairo. They were walking around with a sign about the need to take climate action. They were arrested. They phoned their lawyer who was in Egypt who came to support them, and their lawyer was also arrested. And so they were released, but I think it's just a really shows the severity of what the Egyptian police will do for protesters and those supporting protesters here in Egypt. One of the world's leading climate scientists, Professor Johan Rockström, recently said that the world is coming very, very close to irreversible changes. Time is really running out very, very fast. And that echoes the words of the UN. How hopeful, honestly, can we be that COP27 will deliver? I think that you always have to have hope. 
public opinion is on the side of the environment and climate. And so we really should be using everything in our democratic power, whether that's turning to social media to speak out or better to petition and protest and those kind of forms of our democratic rights to speak out. I think the public mood could really change the UK's perspective a lot. Obviously, I feel like voting for people with good climate credentials would also make a difference. Always feel that we need more scientists in Parliament, but I'm obviously biased because I am a scientist, but I get frustrated at the lack of knowledge that I see within the House making decisions on scientific issues. On a global perspective, I still think there's hope. I met some delegates from Brazil earlier still celebrating the Lula victory against Bolsonaro and what that means for the Amazon and indigenous rights. There are small wins that are happening already. And I think that the trajectory is moving towards a more positive direction. It's just not happening at the speed that it needs to happen. Ella, how confident are you that we can save the rest of the glaciers? Really hopeful that we can, but as things are going currently, I think we will see more losses before we see more recoveries. Really good to speak to you both. Thank you. That's Dr Ella Gilbert from the British Antarctic Survey and Amelia Womack, former deputy leader of the Green Party, who is a delegate for the Global Greens at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper. Check out the details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. I'll see you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye now.